The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is going to be in verses 43 through 48 this morning, concluding this, this uh, subsection of the Sermon on the Mount. For a number of months, we've been walking verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in chapter 5, came to this just rich teaching from the Lord Jesus Christ that we have entitled the Sermon on the Mount, one of these first main messages that the Lord Jesus Christ delivers in His ministry. And this morning, verse 43, we will begin reading. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now we are coming to the sixth time that Jesus begins a a portion of his teaching with those words that we read in verse 43 and 44. You have heard it said, but I say to you, if you look back in your scripture, those of you who have been with us, you will recall to memory if you haven't been with us and it's your first time here this morning, just look back all the way to verse 27. Actually, verse 21 is where we first find it. And Jesus says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder But I say to you, verse 22, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. In verse 27, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 31, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. Verse 33, again you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform the oaths that you swear to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all. And then he goes on to say, let your yeses be yes and your noes be noes. And then last week we looked at verse 38. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Turn the other cheek to give someone your coat and your shirt when they're suing you. To go the extra mile to be generous to the needy and the poor. What Jesus has been doing in these verses that we're reading and this teaching he delivered, it's all flowing out of verse 20. Go back to verse 20 and Jesus gives this shocking statement to a large audience that had gathered to hear the words of this great teacher, of this great um, rabbi that they were coming to, who rumors were even saying may even be the Christ, may even be the Messiah. And they gather to hear his teaching, and he makes this shocking statement, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, 
you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And what he has done in the verses we've looked to and what we're going to look to this morning even and the, the conclusion of this segment of his message is he is taking the teachings of the Pharisees in the, the partial interpretation or even the misinterpretation at times that they derived from the Old Testament law where, where they would only apply it externally or where they would even add to it, as we're going to see they did this morning with the one we're looking at. They would add to it human teaching or they would, they would only apply it partially, never to the internal heart, only to the external action. And they had created a way of living where they would view themselves as righteous before others and righteous in the eyes of God. Anybody in that day and age, if you were to ask them, who's going to make it into heaven, they would have said, surely the scribes and the Pharisees are going to make it. They, they are the most righteous of us all. They live so strictly, dogmatically on what they hold to, and, and they're the ones that really enforce even this law upon us all. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that sort of righteousness, you're not going to be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. And everybody rightly says, how in the world is my righteousness ever going to exceed that sort of righteousness that they have? Jesus, what do you mean? And so Jesus begins to explain it. Well, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And this morning we'll look to verse 43. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. What we're going to look to isn't isn't hard to understand. It's really a simple word that Jesus gives in the understanding aspect. There's some things in the Bible that are difficult to figure out, that are difficult to put together to figure out what exactly is being said here. This is very simple to understand. I could bring my, you know, little kid, my five-year-old boy, or Hudson, seven-year-old in here, and they, they can understand it very, sim- very easily, very simplistically. Where the difficulty comes in and what we're looking to this morning is how to live it out. (laughs) How to actually apply in obedience what God commands of us here. I think it's more difficult even than last week, where last week we were called not to retaliate when wrongs were done against us, but to show kindness in return. Here, we are called not only to show kindness, but to actually develop a a love, a deep, heart-seated love for those whom we would say are our enemies. I want to break the message down this morning just into three, three headings. The command that is given, the reason for the command, and then the standard, the expectation that we find at the end. First, let's look to the command. Love your enemies. That is what Jesus is commanding of us here. Now, the Pharisees, he begins with their interpretation of the law. The Pharisees held a, a wrong, really even subtraction and addition to what was written in the Old Testament. The Pharisees wrongly developed this law to mean love your neighbor, and loving your neighbor means that you must hate your enemy. Now, I want you to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Go ahead and turn back to Leviticus chapter 19. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, I hope you have your Bible with you, whether that is in print in a Bible or whether that is on an app in your phone. But I I would ask and I would commend you, have a copy of the Word of God there for your own eyes to see, for your own eyes to read. I try to be trustworthy and I try to preach the Word of God. 
but hear me, many preachers do not. And unintentionally, I at times may not, because I am not infallible, believe it or not. God's Word is, but I, I can add to and take away from the Word of God. And it is good for you to hold me accountable. And that what I say, you look to the Bible and see that the Bible says also. Leviticus chapter 19 and in verse 18. Here is where we find the command that Jesus is referring to. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's the command as written, I am the Lord. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now Jesus says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall love your uh, neighbor and hate your enemy. So what we find is that the Pharisees took the command of what God gave in the Old Testament, and they subtracted a little bit. They, they did not include the love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is speculation, but maybe, maybe they just didn't include it because they were just getting the gist of the command, really, as yourself describes how you ought to love them. And so maybe we can cut them a little bit of slack and say, uh, we, well, you weren't lessening the command. Maybe you weren't trying to lighten it and make it sound as if it's not as as uh, burdensome as it, it appears when you add that. Maybe they're just being shorthand here, saying, okay, love your, love your neighbor. However, even if that's the case, we cannot excuse the second part. What they added to this command. Love your neighbor, and therefore, because you must love your neighbor, they deducted, we therefore must hate our enemy. Now, did you read anything in the verse we read? And you can go ahead and read verse 20 in Leviticus 19 and all the way down. As a matter of fact, you can read the entirety of your Old Testament. And never will you find the command written that you are to hate your enemies. You find the command, love your neighbor. You find implications, even under the law, of what that looks like to love your neighbor, even the neighbor that was a Gentile, believe it or not. You never find anywhere it written in the Word of God and hate your enemies. However, the Pharisees and their interpretation and application of that law developed this as if it were written in the Word of God. They taught it as if that were the natural right deduction of what it means if I am to love my neighbor, I am going to define my neighbor then in a way that applies only to the people that are like me, only to the people that love me in return, only to the people that I desire to love that are in fellowship and community with me. I am rightly to love them, but you know what? Surely I am not called to love that person that's a pagan, that person that is living against God, that person that is doing things completely in opposition to what God has declared. Surely I am called also to hate those people. That is the teaching that the Pharisees just made prevalent within Israel in this day and age. The Pharisees subtracted a bit from the law, and they added quite a bit to the law. And they totally misconstrued what God had commanded and what they added to it to, to totally do away with the fact in the Old Testament that we see over and over again that God loves all people everywhere. Even in the Old Testament, we see this evidence that even in the calling of Abraham, he says, Abraham, I'm calling you and I'm going to bless you and make of you a great nation, a great people. And that through you, he says, even in the very beginning in the calling of Abraham, through you, I'm going to bring a blessing 
to all the nations of the earth. That even from the beginning, God had the nations in mind. Under the Old Testament law, they were, there were certain laws regarding how you were to treat the foreigner, how you were to treat the visitor coming through your town, no matter what nationality that they were. There were all sorts of evidences under the Old Testament, under the law, and under the examples even given through the stories that unfold in God's work through His people, that, that God desires the salvation of all people everywhere. And get this understanding... Israel was given the law. Israel was given these commands of God to help them live in a righteous way and also to help them live in a distinct way. There were some unique commands they were given, dietary restrictions, for instance, and their purity laws that they were given. God gave those to Israel in order that Israel would be set apart from all the people of the earth, all the other pagan nations even. And the, the, the end goal was that the nations would look to Israel and that they would see that the God of Israel is the one true living God. Now follow this, understand this. God gave them these laws of holiness, these laws of righteousness, even these ceremonial laws to make them unique and distinct from all the other peoples in order to draw all other peoples to himself. That's the game plan. That's where Israel failed. And that's where they rejected what God truly intended. That's where the greater Israel, Jesus, comes to accomplish that. They were to be salt and to be light. Jesus comes to truly be the light of the world, whereby all the nations will be brought and drawn to that eternal kingdom. Israel, the Pharisees in particular, took what God had given to set them apart in their uniqueness and in their righteousness, to draw people to God. And the common Israelite, the Pharisee, by this teaching, turned what God meant to draw the nations to Him into a means of, of repulsing them, into a means of pushing them away, of separating them even further, of doing just the opposite of what God had intended by the righteous laws that He had given. And so, it's written historically that there was an accusation brought against the Jews in Jesus' day and age by the Romans that they, they hated humanity. <laughs> they, they looked down in such disgust upon Gentiles, those that weren't Israelites, and treated them with such bigotry that the, the Romans, even who would befriend the, the Jewish people would often be disgraced and hurt by the actions that were reciprocated to them and the way that they were viewed as less than. And the way that they would even say the, the, the Jews hate all humanity. They hate all nationalities except their own. The, the law that God gave to set them apart meant to show His love to draw them to this righteous God had actually been so twisted and misconstrued in the daily living of the Israelites, of the Jews, that they were using that law and that distinction that was to draw in order to, to push away, in order to separate, not in, in a love to draw, but in a hatred to put down, in a hatred to destroy. And they used the Word of God to justify their hatred. <laughs> Don't miss that sub-application here. They used the Word of God to justify what they were doing. 
why it's important that you have the Bible and you learn to read your Bible and you learn to rightly interpret and rightly apply your Bible because it's so easy to subtract a little bit here. It's so easy to add a little bit there. And the end result is something that is not God-glorifying, that's not of God nor His Word, even though many may stand behind a pulpit with the audience gathered and declaring it to be so. Jesus steps up and He says, You've heard this said, Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say to you, I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. Now, if you've got a more modern translation, you're a little bit confused because it's not as lengthy there. There's some manuscripts that give evidence that perhaps... The, the, the scribe copying the text interjected some of Luke's writings into Matthew's, and so a modern translation thought is we'll just stick with what we find in some of the older manuscripts. I'm not going to get into all the textual criticism here. Bottom line, those words are in, Math, or are in Luke, and whether Luke borrowed from Matthew or Matthew borrowed from Luke is not important this morning. The reality is it's all true. It's all inspired of God. It's all authoritative for us this morning, and it's really the rubber-meet-the-road application of what it means. What does it mean when Jesus says you're to love your enemies? It means you're to bless those who curse you. You're to wish for their best and not wish for their worst. To desire their salvation and not their condemnation. Write that down. You take notes. You're to desire their salvation, their redemption, and not their condemnation. I think that is going to be, at a heart level, the greatest determiner of whether you are truly loving your neighbor, loving your enemies as you ought to love them. Are you desiring their salvation or are you desiring their condemnation? You're to bless even those that curse. You are to do good to those who hate you. And you're even to pray for those who are persecuting you, who spitefully use and persecute you. Jesus says loving your neighbor means loving your enemy too. So so the scribes say, loving, or the Pharisees and scribes say, loving your neighbor means you can hate your enemy. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It never says hate your enemy. You're missing the main point. And Jesus emphasizes this in the parable of the Good Samaritan, doesn't he? We're not going to look to it now because we'll look to it in depth when we get there in the Gospel of Matthew. But the Good Samaritan, Jesus was asked, hey, who is my neighbor? And Jesus gave that illustration of the the person that should have, by the cultural standard, been an enemy, hated that person. And he was the one that responded to the one in need, to the one that even the priest and the Levite passed by, demonstrating love of neighbor entails love of even our enemies. Love of neighbor means love of humanity, love of, of every person that God brings us in contact with. Now before we get... Before we harp on the Pharisees too hard and make it sound like, you know, woe are they that we could never be such or never do such things, consider with me just a moment some modern day enemies, (laughs) some modern day enemies that we as Bible believing Southern Baptist Christians might have in this day and age. An enemy would be anyone who opposes. Or anyone who seeks to does you ha- uh, do you harm. Anyone who opposes you or anyone who seeks to do you harm. And so you can think of your enemies generally, just kind of universally at large. You can think personally of enemies in your life that you may know at work personally or in your neighborhood or in your school or even within your own household. Or 
reality is we do a pretty good job of hating our enemies and justifying it. I want to just break down a couple categories just so we can really properly apply and think through this command of the Lord Jesus. Think, think, think for a moment about our religious enemies. Okay, we have religious enemies. There are false preachers and teachers who bear the name of Christ, who profess to be declaring forth the Word of God, but we look to what they say, and what they are saying does not align with what the Word of God truly teaches. And so they are enemies of the truth. They are enemies of God. They are propagating a false gospel that does not save but leads to eternal damnation. But but God says we are to love them. We are to love them. Think of a preacher that you may dislike (laughs) and that rightly is an enemy because they're not preaching the truth of God's Word and they're deceiving the masses. And there's a sense in which we We feel like because of their error that we are justified in saying anything about them and slandering them in any way, shape, or form and and, in hating and despising them. And and Jesus says, no, you're to love your enemies. Think of people of other religions. Too many times Christians have justified pure hatred. I thought about just a few years back, a, a mosque was being built in New York in the state, and there was a lot of uprising in the community that was against it. And there were some who spoke to the reality of the freedom we're given in this country, that if, if the government can prevent uh, a mosque from being built, they can just as easily prevent a church from being built. And as it, it really made me think, like, goodness, what would happen if, if there was a group of Muslims who were wanting to build a mosque here in Keystone Heights? What would we do? What would we do? I I definitely would not be contributing financially to the building being built. I wouldn't. Okay, they are enemies of the gospel. They are propagating a false religion that is not true. It is not of God. But at the same time, I would not be calling for you and me to be standing out on the road with hateful, spiteful signs that say, you know, you're going to hell and, you know, God will judge and there's one true living God and Allah is not it. Yeah, that, that, that's hateful. That's not. Jesus says we are to be known by our love, that we are to love even our enemies. And there's some tension in what that means as we stand upon the truth and as we rightly confront evil and wickedness and, and also extend a heart of grace, a heart of love to that person. Ultimately, going back to this as I will many times this morning, ultimately am I desiring their salvation or am I desiring their condemnation? Am I doing what I am doing with a heart that says, I really am hoping and praying even earnestly that they come to the gospel, to the truth, to Jesus, that they're saved? Or am I in my arrogance of knowing I'm right and they are wrong, simply speaking for the word to show my rightness and to condemn them for their wrong? What about our political? love your enemy apply to those who have very different views politically and hold to a different party altogether? Your head should be going up and down. Some of you are going... (laughs) 
Is this hard to understand? No. Is this hard to truly live and follow the Lord in? Absolutely. That you are called to love, if you're a Republican, you're called to love the most radical, crazy, far-out Democrat. You're called to love the president who's in the White House and even commanded to pray for him. That doesn't mean you agree. Don't get confused here and think that Jesus says, I command of you to not have any enemies. That's not what Jesus says here. He says, you will have enemies. You will. He had enemies. The Pharisees, for the most part, were a great enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that you give way to truth and that you accommodate your views to error. That is no love at all. When when love is built on falsehood, it's it's no love. It's short-sighted. It's an error. True love must stand upon the truth. We're called to speak the truth. We're called to speak it in love. Not in hate. Not slandering and and, and mocking and and speaking with condemnation and, and with arrogance. We're called in broken humility as one sinner who has found salvation to be speaking and calling out to other sinners who need salvation. I know the Savior. I know the way, the truth, and the life. I'm praying for your salvation. I'm asking even in this that God doesn't let my animosity rise up and cause me to act in a way that's ungodly. So many Christians have a right viewpoint. They're standing on the truth, but they're doing it in a satanic way. They're doing it not being led by their Father who is in heaven, but they're doing it just as the Pharisees, led by their Father who is the devil. Because they're motivated by hate and by pride and by arrogance, and they're desiring condemnation and their own justification and vindiction, and they're not following what Jesus says here. Love your enemies about ideological and moral enemies. You're at UF. You're surrounded by these folks, aren't you? People who hold to all sorts of differing views. You think of woke teaching. You think of even the pro-choice movement. You think of LGBTQ+. Do we and must we stand upon the truth of God's Word? Yes, absolutely. But does the truth of God's Word mean that we're to do so in an arrogant, condemning way? No, that's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees took what God gave that was good, that was meant to set them apart, in order that that all of those folks would be shown the error of their way and drawn to God, and they used that to lift themselves up in their self-righteousness and be condemning upon those that didn't fit their categories. And even if their category was truth, it was sinful, it was wrong, it's not what God commanded. We are to elevate the truth and we're to stand for what is right and we're to declare forth the truth of God's Word into a wicked and perverse generation. But we're to do so in love. We're to do so hoping and praying and striving in everything, even laying our lives down for the purpose of it all, that they might that they might see the true love of God and might come to know the truth of God, Christ Jesus, His Son. It is good to stand for truth and to confront what is wrong and wicked, but we must do so in love, desiring the salvation of our enemies and not the condemnation of our enemies. The command 
Let's look secondly to the reason. And we'll do this one a little bit more quickly. <laughs> the reason why, verses 45 through 47, because you are a child of God, aren't you? Because <laughs> you know the God who is love, don't you? Because you're following in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ, aren't you? It says in verse 45, you're to do this that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now, he's not saying you do this in order to become the sons of God, that you are saved through this effort. No, no, no. He's saying you will do this and become known by others as the sons of God as you follow in the footsteps of your Father. Alfred Plummer wrote many years ago, to return evil for good is demonic. To return good for good is human. But to return good for evil is divine. To return evil for good, that's of the demons. That's of the devil. That's demonic. To return good for good, that's of humanity. That's, that's simply tit for tat. Return what's done. You get good, you, you give good. But to return good when someone does you evil, he rightly acknowledges in light of this passage, that's of God. That is divine. It is an evidence that you are truly of him. You realize that children follow in the footsteps of their father. They imitate their father. I was sitting on the couch just the other day, day before yesterday, and Hudson and Trent are playing with Legos, and they got their little Lego guys, their little Lego men, and they do all sorts of cops and robbers and all sorts of little make-believe, you know, little games they're playing. And, and I find, found it quite comical that Trent grabs one and he says, This is the preacher. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, great, where is this going to go? And he had his little Lego guy. This is the preacher. And Hudson then, then goes, okay, he's, he's now the robber. <laughs> Trent, Trent didn't like that. Trent's like, the preacher can't be the robber. And he looks at me and he goes, Daddy, preachers aren't robbers, are they? I looked at him and I said, only the ones on TBN. <laughs> and it went right over his head. And he looked at me like, what are you talking about? Kids imitate their fathers. They, they, they follow in the footsteps of their father. They, they look like, if somebody says it one more time, it's, it's got to be true. Hudson apparently is a spitting image of his daddy. If you call yourself a child of God, you ought to look like God. Jesus says God causes the sun to shine on the evil and the good. God causes the rain to fall on the wicked farmer and the good farmer's crops. He doesn't say, no, only my, my, my loving kindness is reserved only for, only for those following me. No, there's common grace in all the world that even the most wicked person on earth has experienced the common grace of God and the goodness of what's still left in this scarred and broken world by God's sovereign, divine hand. Even the worst can see goodness and beauty. Jesus says God has a love for all. Jesus says don't even the pagans, don't even the tax collectors, even the worst of the worst of that day and age, they were hated and despised. They were the ones that took more taxes than were required. They were the ones that had sold themselves out to Rome. They were traitors. They don't even the don't even the, the tax collectors greet those that greet them and love those that love them. You're called to more as a child of God. God's loving kindness extends to all people, so should yours, if you're a child of God. That, that is the reasoning, because you are a child of God. Lastly, thirdly, let's consider the standard, the requirement. Verse 
verse 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. The standard and the measurement, the expectation, it's not that you simply love more than you hate. It's not that you simply love more than others love. The, the standard here is the perfect standard of God's righteousness. You are to love as God loves. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now there's many that struggle with what do I do with this verse, this word from Jesus do we lighten, lighten it up a little bit and say, well, perfect can really mean complete or whole. And so this just speaks to the, the trajectory of our lives ought to be heading towards a wholeness and a completeness. Uh, just as our Heavenly Father is whole or mature, and no, it doesn't fly, I don't think. Do we explain it away and Jesus really didn't know what he was talking about? He really didn't mean we have to be perfect. I think he did, and I think he does. I think this ties into verse 20, where it's really the conclusion of, of this whole section that began in verse 20, where Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus concludes it and he says, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. How, how many of you in here this morning are perfect? I'm going to put my hand down. None of us are perfect. And if you're reading that and thinking, how in the world can I ever attain that? I can't do that. Then you're exactly in the place that Jesus wants you to be. If you remember when we began the Sermon on the Mount, I told you this over and over and over again, that the Sermon on the Mount is not a roadmap to the kingdom of heaven, as if we just take the teachings of Jesus and apply them to our lives, and if we do it well enough, we get in, we get there, as if we can do it in and of ourselves. The Sermon on the Mount is really a litmus test for the kingdom of heaven. It's really a test of characteristics that, that show us none of us are worthy. None of us can make it in and of ourselves. The problem with the Pharisees is they thought they could do it on their own. They thought they could do this and do this and do this and not do that and not do that and not do that and then stand before God someday and say, I've made it. I'm here. Don't you see my life and what I've done? Let me in. Jesus will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I don't know you. Your righteousness must exceed that sort of righteousness. As a matter of fact, your righteousness must be the perfect righteousness of God. This is what we're called to. This is the standard and requirement for a holy God. And it leaves you ending the Sermon on the Mount going, none of us will make it, and you're right. It's where Jesus wants us. Because he goes from the Sermon on the Mount, and not very long from here, he's going to be hanging upon a cross. He's going to be shedding his blood at Calvary. After having prayed, Lord, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. If they can live good enough in and of themselves to make it into the kingdom of God, would Jesus have had to have died upon a cross? No. All of this is leading to Calvary. All of this is pointing us to Christ who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You come unto me and I can forgive your sins and your shortcomings, your transgressions, your, your, your iniquities before God, and, and your, your, your tainted righteousness that will never make it. Guess what? I'll forgive your sins and I'll give you my righteousness. I'll clothe you in, in my garment. 
that when God looks at you, He doesn't see you in your sin. He sees me in my righteousness and in my perfection. And that is the only way that you will get into the kingdom of heaven. If you're here thinking that you can keep a list of rules, and that you even being here this morning is going to add to your side of love, your side of good deeds that someday may commend you before God and, and make it where you can get in, you're, you're mistaken and you don't understand the, the fullness of what Jesus is teaching here and what is so plain all throughout the New Testament. Jesus died in order to accomplish your salvation. If you've never come to Him and Him alone and said, God, I'm a sinner, will you save me? I know Jesus died upon a cross, was buried and raised again. I know He's got the power over sin and death and the grave. Would you just save me of your grace and your mercy, of your loving kindness? The amazing grace of God is that He does save any who come to Him in that fashion. A broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. He doesn't turn Him away. He saves. He forgives. If you've never done that, goodness does that settle you. And if you have, and you come to God, and you believe upon Him, He gives you His righteousness, He gives you a new heart, He gives you His Holy Spirit, and now these commands that condemn us actually become the commands that God now gives us the ability to fulfill. Not in order to earn our salvation, but because of our salvation. Not in the, the weakness of the flesh, unable to do that which God commands, but, but in the newness of life, in the heart He's given, that, that is a new heart, that is the Spirit of God at work within us, to, to fulfill, to do that which God commands. And, and so for the believer, don't sit here and say, well, whew, this doesn't apply to me. This just, this just brought about my condemnation, and I'm forgiven in God, and now I can go on hating my enemies. No. No, in Christ you can, and you're called to. You're commanded to love Love the religion that is false. Love the political figure or person clinging to whatever idea of morality or social issue that is totally contrary to God. Don't, don't give way on the truth. Stand on the truth. But love them. Desire their salvation rather than their condemnation had a little bit of a lengthy conclusion that I'm going to just summarize with a story. The man's name is Russell Sindel. Sindel, I believe is how you pronounce it. 1983, some of you might remember American missionary in Colombia who was taken captive by uh, rebel revolutionaries, army soldiers. Uh, they were taking anybody who was a gringo, anybody who was white who might have money and holding them ransom, hoping families would contribute financially to get their freedom. And so he was a missionary there. His parents were missionaries there. He was raised in Colombia. He was a jungle pilot, flew in. Um, they ended up seeing him fly in. They went and took him captive. Five months they would hold him captive there. And at first he, he, he wrote much during that time. They let him correspond because they were hoping that that would pull the heartstrings in order to get the parents or the family to contribute money for his freedom. And so they let him write. And, and he wrote a lot during that time. Uh, but he said early on his heart was to fight, his heart was to look for a moment of their weakness where he could maybe even kill somebody, get away, and, and he eventually came to God laying upon his heart to just love them and to be kind to them no matter how evil and mean and you know 
torturing him even, that, that whatever they did, to just be as kind as he possibly could be. And it got to a point where they recognized what he was doing to the extent they, they joked about how much of a friend he had become and even were saying, you know, we've got to kill you, but we're not going to do it face-to-face because, you know, we kind of like you. We'll have to wait till you're asleep to, to put a bullet in your head. And they never did. He says on different, different occasions they were commanded to, but the soldier never could quite pull the trigger. Five months later, he's released. They realized who his parents were, that they were missionaries that had helped um, a person who was higher up in this little organization down there back in the day as missionaries. And, and so they let him go. And I tell you the whole story because I want you to remember his words that he wrote to his parents while he was captured, while he was being tortured, while he was being starved even. Writing about why he was doing what he was doing and showing them kindness and showing them love. Just one phrase and we'll, we'll close with this and pray. He says, I am in danger only of losing my life. They are in danger of losing their souls. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us such a burden for lost people that even when we're standing for things that are right and standing against things that are grotesquely wicked and so against you and against your word that we would we would stand and that we would have courage and boldness to never falter, to never give way, to never accommodate. But Lord, in our standing, we would always be desiring sinners to be saved. Lord, that is your heart that you have expressed towards us not only in your word, but even in nature itself, in Jesus' name, through the Son and the rain. Lord, help us to love our enemies as well as who we would consider our friends and our neighbors, as Christ has called us to it, because we, we show your love in it. Lord, convict where conviction, conviction is needed, lead to repentance of your loving kindness. If there be anyone here who is lost, I pray now they get saved, they turn to Christ, they turn to you. Lord, work, I pray in this invitation. I ask it in Christ's name.